for me, life just is getting turned on brighter and brighter and brighter. I love saying I'm old. Now, I'm not that old, but when you say that, I release people of a weird <laughs> infatuation, I guess, with age. What do you give up? What do you take with you? Who are you? And will I be like you when I'm old? I think all these things, as I do everything I do, I think I'm telling people what it's like. This is what you can be, full of life, reaching for the stars as you ever did. That was Ricky Lee Jones, and this is Shiro's, a podcast with a mission to turn up the volume of women's voices in music across genres and generations. I'm Carmel Holt, and what you're about to hear is a previously aired interview from my syndicated public radio show, Shiro's Radio. Shiro's is a deep dive into the experiences and perspectives of women and gender expansive folks in a still overwhelmingly male-dominated music industry. It's a space where we discuss challenges and triumphs, how far we've come and how far we still have to go. Telling our stories is the first step to making music better for everyone. This week, we bring you a very special edition of the show, a Shiro of Shiro's. She's known as the Duchess of Coolsville, an unparalleled Grammy-winning singer, songwriter, musician, interpreter of songs, and author. The one and only Ricky Lee Jones, who has just put out her 15th studio album, Pieces of Treasure. The album is her first devoted entirely to the great American songbook. And while this seven-time Grammy-nominated artist has always woven jazz and pop sounds and covers into her work, one could say this album is nearly a lifetime in the making. Several of the songs on Pieces of Treasure harken back to Ricky Lee Jones' childhood and songs she learned from her father. It also sees Ricky reuniting with producer Russ Teitelman, who co-produced her 1979 landmark platinum-selling self-titled debut, which would garner Ricky Lee Jones her first four Grammy nominations and first win as Best New Artist in 1980 and her 1981 critically hailed follow-up Pirates, which went gold and ranked number 49 on NPR's list of the 150 greatest albums made by women in 2017. This full circle moment that this amazing new album captures encompasses that four decades of friendship with Russ and Ricky Lee Jones's trailblazing career. It's also the perfect follow-up to her acclaimed 2021 memoir, Last Chance Texaco, Chronicles of an American Troubadour. Just like life, the album is filled with equal parts humor and emotion and ever-present love. There can be no doubt that Ricky Lee Jones is an icon. Her voice, her timing is just as astonishing as ever. And as you'll hear in this interview, which was recorded back in April, just days before Pieces of Treasure was released, she is still paving the way for us all. It's an honor to feature Ricky Lee Jones as this week's Shiro in the Spotlight. Ricky Lee Jones, welcome to Shiro's. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I'm, you know, I only just got Shiro's and Heroes. I was going to say something about guys. I mean, oh, he, there it is. That's <laughs> right. glad to be here. You are a Shiro of Shiro's, that is for sure. Mm. And I'm so excited to be here with you the day before Pieces of Treasure comes yeah. out into the world. Man, you must be so excited. I am excited, but this thing is almost like going to somebody else's graduation, you know, just going to be in the audience watching it go out <laughs> into the world. <laughs> Why do you feel that way? Because once it's taken from me, it's not mine. Once it goes out and other people 
put that little fingers on it. It's theirs then. Well, I would love to start by hearing how this album came to be, what the genesis was. There's a reunion involved or a couple of reunions with some old friends. Sure. Yeah. How did Pieces of Treasure, your first proper album of American songbook standards, came to be? Let's see, it's April now. So about 16 months ago, I went to New York for lunch <laughs> with Russ Tidelman. I was there for a TV thing, maybe. I, I was there for some reason and decided to look him up. I hadn't spent any time with him over these years. Turns out I have, but I didn't remember doing some live stuff with him. So from my point of view, we hadn't been together since 83. And I had two reasons for doing that. One was just simply that I should, you know, see my old friend that I had such history. But I also had a secret reason of I wanted to make another record and I wanted a real producer, somebody that I'd worked with and was connected to the time in my career when I made, not that, no, that I haven't made great work, but when I'd made really successful work, the work that people look to. So I thought, maybe if we work together again. So I went to find Russ because I wanted to make a record of new work. And I wanted to work with somebody who knows how to listen and just listen. And when I went to see him, I wasn't sure what his reaction was going to be. And the first thing he said was, we should do a jazz album. And I thought, if this is the way in. But what happened was a transformation. So I went there for a producer, but what I found was my old friend. And because of this profound friendship, picking up right where it left off. Something happened in the studio built on love and compassion and kindness. I think sometimes when you hire somebody who it's strictly business, they don't come with love and they build a different kind of thing. So in this case, at this time with these people, me and Russ, love is what made this record extraordinarily intimate and funny and all the undercurrent of everything is made from that relationship, I think. That makes so much sense. And you can really hear it yeah. in, in the songs <laughs> and the production. It's just beautiful. And it was recorded live, right? Well, yeah. You mean as opposed to recording them and then me? Yeah, yes. I, was, I was there recording Alive as I can be. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we continue talking about the record, I would love to play a clip of one of these songs. Where did this start? Is there a song on here that you can point to that kind of got the whole ball rolling? Well, you know, it was a flood. And I start the record with Just In Time because it's got all the elements that take place in the record that I love, which, that I just mentioned. It's got humor and kind of sexy and, and very unaffected. Just in time You found me just in time Before you came Things were running low I was lost, the losing dice were tossed, 
Ricky Lee Jones is our guest today on Shiro's. The new album is called Pieces of Treasure. I'm Carmel Holt. And we were talking about the genesis and how you reunited with Russ. And I guess for our listeners, we should fill in the blank of the timeline of how you and Russ met all those years ago. You referred to that first project that you did together. Can you share with our listeners who might not be familiar with that history? Well, in 1978, I was signed to a record contract at Warner Brothers, and I had just been homeless a few months before, sleeping on people's couches, giving it everything I had to get this contract, and we got it. I was signed to or with Lenny Warnker, who is the producer of Randy Newman, and he and Russ had also done other extraordinary singer-songwriters and had great success both on the radio and in how carefully and beautifully they painted those stories. So elegant, not too much hipster stuff. And Lenny sent the demo to Russ and said, I want you on this project. Listen to this record and come back and meet the girl. And so he listened and he likes to tell this story, so I know it by heart now. (laughs) He He said, this is like Roberta Flack, which for him, it's the highest praise. But for people who don't know, when she did the first time ever I saw your face, she had this clear, unaffected, ringing bell of a voice that captured people emotionally. It's not a name you hear a lot as a place to aspire to, but it is. It's it's a powerful voice and a, and a beautiful comparison. And he felt that way because of a song I wrote, Company. I see you in Come 
so Russ liked the voice and Lenny liked the writing, and we made this amazing record, again, recording the tracks in two weeks and then spending a couple months putting my vocals on. I'd never been in the studio before, and they gave me free reign from the very beginning. I wrote the horn parts, that is to say, I sang the parts to the horn players and they played them because I didn't know how to write music. And we had a powerful success, and I had a success that brought me into the public stage. My image, the sound of my voice, and the idea of a new woman in the genre of singer-songwriters, which had been dominated solely by Joni Mitchell, and a few people knew Laura Nero's name, but not that many. She had this East Coast soul thing that was less interesting, I guess, to the larger audiences by 1978. And then the folk singers who had had so much sway for a while, like Joan Baez, but no new women. And my work encompassed jazz, they like to call it trad jazz now, and it was a wide variety of stuff not coming out of the folk movement of the 60s, as if a woman can't have these influences, but they hadn't by then. So it was a white woman with a lot more soul influence, a lot of radio, right? So I think that's partly why. It was just a window that was open for a minute at the end of that decade for something new. They were calling a lot of music new wave, but it wasn't new wave, but it's a sign that people were looking for something new to take them to the next decade. Is that a good answer? So anyway, we had this big success, and then the next record, even more critically acclaimed. This was Pirates, right? Yeah, Pirates. Mm -hmm. Not more dollars, but lots of praise, because I did not go in the direction you would think I would go. People thought I would go in to capture more of the market and write songy songs like the big hit (laughs) and its cousins. (laughs) So I wrote something instead that was like theater and it was dark and moody and tragic. Say, this was no game of chicken. You were aiming your best friend. That you wear like a switchblade on a chain around your neck. I think you picked this up in Mexico for Critics liked it a lot, and that was almost the end of my time at Warner Brothers, and it was the end of my time with Linny and Russ. So I, I called Russ up to help me with a live record called Naked Songs. We had filmed some of me playing, and he helped make that music right, and so that's that story. But I hadn't seen him then, 
It's in almost 30 years. 30 years. 30 wow. years. And uh, there he was, just exactly as he ever was. I, it's not true I hadn't seen him. He'd come to some shows, and we'd said hello backstage, but I hadn't spent time with him. Quite lovely now to be in the circle of his embrace, you know. It sounds like this amazing fairy tale of a story where you went seeking him out and became this full circle moment. I mean, it sounds like full circle, yeah. you know, that your instincts were correct, first of all. Yeah. And you know how it is. Sometimes when you try to recapture the past or rekindle something, it doesn't always go the way that you think it would. But it sounds like it did. That was the main thing is I didn't want to be sentimental. I was mm. reticent to suggest working together because of the great possibility that we would go seeking a rabbit back over our shoulder, mm -hmm. something that had happened in the past, not something we can make in the future. And also the process was beguiling because he reminds me what I do best. And he said, you must rehearse. <laughs> Don't you remember before we made those records, we rehearsed. Well, I never rehearse. I go into the studio and make it or try to make it happen when I arrive. So we rehearsed and we prepared. And when we got to the studio, I knew what I was doing. So all I need to do now is introduce myself spiritually to the other guys in the room. And they did that for me. You know, they came to the studio door, my booth, and said, it's such an honor to be playing with you. And you can't know what that meant to me because it's not big potatoes that I've never done a jazz record or that the jazz community has not let me in. But what is big potatoes is great players who say, and they're not really saying this part, but for me, regardless of what you may think people think, this is what we really think. And it's an honor to be here playing this music with you. It was so moving for me. And every single thing gave me confidence. Every smile and great remark helped build this character that came through this record. And so I couldn't have known, but that's what happened in the studio because we prepared and because Russ picked people who play with singers. Because it's a town, it's country, it's full of great musicians, but people who listen first and listen to the singer engage with a woman, all these things that in the jazz world or in music, it's still evident you know, that you're a guest in somebody else's idea of what music is. And even someone like me, who's been around for decades and accomplished, I found myself still on the other side of that. So this was the warm embrace of the past that was respectful and loving and believed in what I could do, just because that's what friends do. That's what Is friends that too do. dramatic? But that's what friends do. And yeah. so friendship pulled out of me the best that I could possibly do because it was safe, right? It was safe. So it was safe to go in that deep emotionally. You'll hear at the end of one track, 
a sob, but that began to happen after almost every track. And they're not sad songs necessarily. Well, they are a little sad, but it's not the sorrow of them. It was the depth of emotion and the feeling, I guess, that I was catching it. And also, it's an extraordinary exalted feeling to sing. It resonates against your skeleton. I mean, singing is profound, but all those things just reduce me to tears. And I could feel the musicians, like the drummer's hand in midair with his brush. I could feel them all waiting, like someone was praying. And when they're done, (laughs) then we'll get up out of the room. But nobody got up out of the, you know, and left. It was so lovely. And I do want to talk about it because, you know, I want to remember, but I don't want to turn it into the promotional device. I mean, this is what happened, but it's kind of, it was kind of holy. Yeah. And, And powerful for both our immediate understanding that our direction was forward, not backward. And it's just that simple. He's a producer. I'm a singer. He knows what I can do. I know what he will do. And that's what we did. (laughs) Beautiful. Ricky Lee Jones is here with us on Shiro's. The new album is called Pieces of Treasure. What was that song that you were referring to that you can hear the sob at the end of? That's all in the game. The last song on the record. You have to, you know, because the song ends and a few seconds go by before you hear it. We made the decision to leave it on because, like I said, there was a lot of sobbing. And I thought, this is part of this song. This is part of this performance. And we could cut it off, but you won't know. So I'm going to leave this one sob on. Soon he'll be there at your side with a sweet bouquet and The sob that Ricky Lee Jones wanted us all to hear. Ending the track, It's All in the Game, which also ends the new album, Pieces of Treasure. I asked Ricky Lee Jones how she and her producer, Russ Teitelman, chose the songs out of the Great American Songbook for this album. He sent, here's that rainy day, and another, and another, and then I sent, it never entered my mind, and and another, and then... Sometimes we had the same songs in mind, which was great. You know, he really wanted it never entered my mind. So I said, I'll learn that. I was familiar, but I didn't know it. I didn't do things that I really didn't know because I couldn't make them as easy 
as the things that are my language. And then once we had that list, we played it with the pianist Rob Mounsey to see what he and I would have a rapport with. And then once we canceled out some of those things, we took everything else in and tried it. So we probably recorded 17 or 18 songs, I'm thinking. Right away, we began to see this character, this color taking place, and it didn't happen on every song. They were good, but they weren't this thing. So I picked 10 songs only because every one of them were in this character, yeah. You know, because you can go back in an overdub, but the idea was as if it were direct-to-disc. Not totally, but as if. And so as much as we possibly can, we leave it alone. It, it's as close to live as I'm going to get. I was sent a song-by-song commentary by you. Right. And I noticed yeah. that a lot of these songs were very special to you and near to your heart because they had been taught to you by your dad. Yeah. It started to come together alongside the brilliant memoir that you just put out where you're telling your life story. And that also felt sort of full circle. There is something about sharing with all of us your family history. And then the first album that comes out following that being one that really harkens back to your childhood. So when I finished the book, I felt a great weight leave me at last. I love all those old ghosts. I carry these words around with me, old ghosts, and my family and the ancestors, and they want their stories told. And And once I completed that task on behalf of them, as well as my own extraordinary life, well, version one anyway, <laughs> once I completed it, I did feel, you know, there are these invisible wheels that turn And they're little ones and big ones, and they're the clock of your life. And sometimes that great big one, no matter what you do, nothing's going to happen till it comes back around and locks up, and you can feel it coming. It's not that it'll happen magically. You must work and do good work. But once it happens, it's not unlike the beginning of my career when things just line up and everything you do bears fruit. So... Without putting a jinx on it, it seemed as if, at least artistically, and also a goodwill from people, that things were lining up. And that made it feel, in some ways, like we were picking it up where we left off at the end of Pirates, but on the other side of the mountain that we had traveled, with little pieces of treasure still in our pocket. I want to steal a question from our mutual friend, Jessica Hopper. By the way, it was so wonderful to see you featured in her series, Women Who Rock. I loved it so much. Yes. Yeah. Just thought it was such a great question, which was your journey and your relationship with jazz, how that has evolved over the years. I was just saying how, you know, this kind of harkens back to your childhood and learning jazz standards and jazz from your dad and what was kind of coming in your ears in your formative years and your first record to now, how that relationship has evolved. Well, it starts as a relationship with my family because grandfather and Uncle Bob and my dad played that music that we call jazz now. I don't know if they called it jazz then, but it was Sunny Side of the Street and Ragtime Cowboy Joe. 
And then the stuff from their teenage years, from Frank Sinatra, the Mills Brothers, I'll Be Seeing You, My Funny Valentine is one of the first he taught me. And then Nature Boy in September song on some other very confident <laughs> week. He's, I'm going to teach her these. And I was about 10. Land and sea. A little shy and sad of eye, but very wise was he. And then one day, one magic day, he came my way. As we spoke of many things, fools and kings, this he said to me, the greatest thing you'll ever learn is just to love. Ricky Lee Jones and Nature Boy, one of the songs that her father taught her when she was just 10 years old, along with September Song, both now on this album, Pieces of Treasure. He explained the text of September Song. He said they're using the months of the years to describe a relationship, a spring to winter relationship is a young person and an old person. And in this song, there's an old man at the end of his life singing about how much he loves this person, but he's not going to live long enough to be with them. What an odd song, I thought. I liked the melody very much, especially September, November. I understood it melodically. Kurt Vile wrote this I'm thinking that he's also the lyricist of his songs. I'm not sure. But they're always odd. And I don't think it's the translation from German to English. I think it was just odd theater points of view, like Back the Knife, you know, tragic figures of 100 years ago, people, his stories. And and I'm attracted to them, but only one at, only one at a time. And in that song, I thought, I've passed that old man that I imagined singing this song, but I understand very well love, that the heart that never stops seeking and accepting love, and the feeling that your time is running out. But for me, life is getting turned on brighter and brighter and brighter than it was at the end of youth. The end of youth is the end of a thing, and it's a grieving time. But once you accept that and you enter the next epoch, (laughs) then you're young again. You're young, old. At least I am. And I think it has to do with the book as much as anything. But also, I love saying I'm old. Now, I'm not that old. But when you say that, I release people of a weird... (laughs) infatuation, I guess, with age. The younger they are, but any age in there, they look, at some point you begin to transform all of us into an older person. 
what's that like? Do you still like to kiss people or do they like you or what's it like? I thought these things when I was 15 or 20 and I didn't know how to ask, what is it like to age? What do you give up? What do you take with you? Who are you? And will I be like you when I'm old? I think all these things, as I do everything I do, I think I'm telling people what it's like. This is what you can be, full of life, reaching for the stars as you ever did. Your changing body doesn't have to mean that you prepare to die <laughs> way, way, way before that day comes. So more than ever, I like to think I'm representing. You just provided me, Ricky, with the perfect segue to <laughs> to ask you about being at this point in your career as a woman, because uh -huh. I'm really on about this as somebody that's about to turn 50. I recognize that we're still up against some pretty significant ageism in music, as we are in just society. Sure. But, but I feel like for women especially, it's a lot harder to have longevity in our careers. And just wanted to throw that big ball over to you sure. and, and get your thoughts on this now, having been in this business for decades. I think we experience this prejudice and fear of age, prejudice against women aging and fear of age, when we leave menopause and are less attractive sexually to who's ever interested or would have been interest, we see that interest wane. And with that interest waning is all manner of disrespect. So you're in line at Starbucks and they don't even see you anymore. All these things that cause rage in middle-aged women, you see why, because they're basically no longer existing. This is just a phase. It's the transition for them. And once you leave that transition, I'm not saying it's right, I'm just saying what it is. Once you leave the transition into an older person, their respect and interest will return. They feel safe. But I think when we're leaving our sexual life or, or what, you know, young men or young people think was our sexual life, it's frightening. And so if that's happening in life, it will happen at work. Whatever your work is, you'll meet that person. You know, initially I met it with indignation, but all you can do is talk to other women who are meeting it with indignation and then be your best self everywhere you go. And you'll teach others how to be their best selves. Sometimes, you know, I just would say some crappy remark to somebody who, who just didn't even see me while they went over my shoulder to wait on that beautiful girl in back of me. And how humbling that is, because I was that beautiful girl too. So... The message to young people, you know, be sure that, <laughs> that you don't let anybody ignore the old woman in front of you. And so once I got to 60s, I'm 68, once I got here and wrote that book, I just went, I love being alive. I am going to hold on to every hour I'm here. I'm going to be a lover again, somebody's lover. I'm going to figure out how to do that. <laughs> I don't know how to do it anymore. We're going to figure out how to do it, how to be old, vital, fantastic people and show other people the way. So 
Did that help? And so in the studio, but also I perform all the time live, and there's a just a gentleness. And you can just you can get as upset about that of people calling you uh, what do they call you when you're sweetie or sweetheart or honey or you could get upset, but I don't. I just think people are trying to be kind and compassionate, and they don't realize that when they call you a term of endearment in a public setting that they wouldn't call somebody else. You're not a child, and it's not really necessary, and it makes a division. They don't realize it. They're actually trying to say, I see you, and I respect you. But I would advise people, don't call old ladies terms of endearment. It's really, really, it's not cool. Yeah, <laughs> I would agree right? with that. Yeah, I would definitely <laughs> agree with that. Continuing on the Shiro's thread here, Ricky, what would you say has changed the most for women in this business yeah. since you started? And what do you think still needs some work? I don't know if I could answer that because I don't know about other women's experience. I really only know about mine. Mm -hmm. And I think mine is unique because the way that I began my career and its tenuous grasp <laughs> through the years, I feel like people, for the most part, if they know who I am, are very respectful. There are a lot of people who don't know, and that's okay because, you know, we're in a business of popular song. So if you don't have a popular song, people may not necessarily know the history of music that they should know if they're in the business, but they don't. So I never take it as an insult if somebody doesn't know. If they don't know you, they don't know you. What are you going to do? So be a good person, a nice person. And But I can't tell you if it's any different now than it was. There's probably just as many predatory guys waiting to catch you and say, I can get you in front of this guy. Come on over tonight. And if you're foolish enough to think that you can have sex or give anything up to somebody who wants something from you and that you're going to get somewhere, then you probably should just go home and not be in the business because the business is predatory. I think that we're entering a time of, I hope, you know, at least that's how they represent themselves. <laughs> but I think we're entering a time where younger people really don't want to be predatory the way they have in the past. That doesn't mean that when you wanted a time it, you're not going to meet that same guy mm -hmm. in every generation that people met in 1940 and 1970 and, and now. So I hate to give advice, but I just find myself saying, you know, don't ever give something in order to do your job, you know, that's not due to them. This is a job and it's work. And if you like them and you want to, do it, but be careful because you might find yourself liking a lot of people who are going to help you. So you need to check yourself that you're not using people as well. Mm -hmm. You know, that thing goes both ways. Right. And I think we have to be very moral people. And as long as we talk shop, as long as we talk music and keep the focus on music, we'll attract the right people. I know it happened for me. That's the thing I keep going is you can't say it's going to happen for everybody. You, you don't know what their journey will be. But that same old thing is always the same. Just be true to yourself. 
And that's one thing that you've definitely been like over all of the decades. I love that you have never allowed anyone to box you in into genre. I tried. Uh, You know, (laughs) you've basically done it all. And now here you are stepping into this. And I'm sure that there's going to be a that and another and another afterwards. I was curious about, too, you kind of mentioned this in passing before about jazz and it being a man's world. And I was looking yeah. over the, who wrote these songs and who wrote the lyrics for the songs. I think there was maybe one that had lyrics written by a woman. And I was curious about that part of the experience of inhabiting songs that were written by men, um, yeah. how to adapt them for a woman's voice and perspective. I think that there was even something in <laughs> the notes that you wrote here about there will never be another you and you said I hate that misogynistic (laughs) bullshit music and it's everywhere so I'd love to just hear you talk to us a little bit about that that was a problem for me with this song I did find my way in and also Nat King Cole standing in the doorway with his arms (laughs) you may not enter you shall not pass (laughs) because What I feel when I hear that song, and by Nat, King Cole as well as anybody else, it's a kind of glib dismissal. Well, he ends it with, there'll never be another you, babe. He says, you know, there are going to be a lot of other nights like this, like this. So he's saying it as it's happening. (laughs) Like, what? (laughs) There'll be a, a lot of other nights like this, and I'll be here with someone new. Could you imagine somebody saying that to you? Oh, my God. But I kept listening, and, uh, you know, and I know the writer is a kind of guy about town in the 30s, so that was kind of a cool thing to be. I kept looking for something honest, emotional that he said, and he said it through the melody. He, He didn't say it so much with the lyrics, but in the melody, he said, But there will never, ever be. Well, he did say it with the lyrics. There will never, ever be. Those are the words of a child. Adults don't say, there will never, ever be. That's a a little child's. And he attached it to a child's melody. So I I'll go in that door. There's the back door. And I'll find my way into saying this to someone I love, not someone I'm sending home. And when I did that, she was very sexy, you know, to me. And I thought, ah, she's taking the song away from Nat. Look at her. There will be many others. She's kind of like, okay, I'm going to do it. But at the heart of it, you have to be talking to somebody that you love. Nights like this Oh, I'll be standing here With someone new There will be other songs to sing Another fall, another spring But there will never be Thrill me like yours 
The new album is called Pieces of Treasure, and there will never be another you. I just want to say that I love this show. You know, I'm so glad that we have a thing focusing on the female experience in the arts and how life bleeds into our art. The kind of person we are, the experience that we're happening is the experience that will go down onto the vinyl. That's the magical thing that happens. So I, mean, I noticed it in records in the past that inexplicable, like uh, this song I wrote, I wasn't here. I was thinking of this red balloon sailing away, but it never happens in the lyric. And yet when I recorded it, two people said, you know, I see a red balloon when you sing that song. I went, there it is. That's the magic. And that's what's happening now. You know, the thing that's happening between us, our hopes, our dreams, this coming together of a circle of lifetime of experience with so much love and optimism is there in the vinyl, the inexplicable thing. Wouldn't that be amazing if at 70, my career went, (laughs) I was like, all right, I stuck around. My career went up, 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 up. It would. Like that red balloon. From your lips to God's ears. And I uh, that moment when Bonnie Raitt won Record of the Year. Exactly. I cried so hard because I How just— How did those moments happen, you know, because you see so many ways, so many times— Sorry to interrupt you. No, that, no, that no. People are overlooked year after year for a big-selling thing. Women yeah, are right. overlooked. Did you get that Rock and Roll Hall of Fame thing, that 11 percent— 11% of the people are women. Like, how do they even show their faces? <laughs> so, so maybe in making that public, they'll go, oh, yeah, you know, we have to stop parceling this out <laughs> to a couple every, you know, there's so many women. How about 22%? <laughs> oh, so, I know. And on the production end, I watched the documentary, The Other Side of Desire, about the making of that album. There were some things that went unsaid and some things that you did say right on camera about the struggles in the studio. And gosh, it really got me pissed off to watch it, to see it. And, you know, just the places that we end up where we're trying to just make our art and make our voices be heard and the lack of safety, the lack of acknowledgement, being kind of steamrolled over that I hear about all the time. And it it just makes me so mad. <laughs> yeah, that was um, and I was mad on your behalf, you know. Yeah, that yeah. was a rough time. But yeah. that was the end of that circle. That was the right. end of a phase. Maybe you could say it's the end of youth. That was an ending and there was nothing you could do, even though we could have made really good music if there had been some love and confidence, maybe, I don't know. But that's why this, even though it's how many, seven or eight years later, it's the beginning yeah. of something. And it's got that youth and excitement about it. So it's not about how old you are. It's about where you are in your view of your life, the cycle of life. I do believe there's a bigger, you know, even though it's from the invisible, but I do believe there's a bigger circle that turns that there's nothing you can do if you want to have that 
right now, you can't. You'll have to wait till the thing comes around. But if you accept that the other side of desire is exactly that, and this is the best that's going to happen, and it is crappy, <laughs> and you're going to have to do your best. You know, I got sick from that. That was so hard. I actually got sick. But I lived through it, and some of those songs are really beautiful. So no matter what, I kept trying to sing the song. And I was trying to grow in a new, you know, I just moved here. So I was, I threw my life up in the air and look where I landed. Yay. Yay. Totally. But we were talking percentages. There was a statistic that's been very stubborn to not move past like three, two, three percent, which is production. Right. That's and right. I really hope, and this comes up a lot in these conversations, that we can start to move the needle on that because exactly what I saw happening to you in the studio, I know would be different if there were more women behind the board. I had a female crew for the record Traffic from Paradise. Oh, the... I love that record. And that's <laughs> I think it's like the 30th anniversary of that record this year. Oh, it's just it? crazy. Oh yeah. <laughs> it was uh, her name was Julie Last, and she worked with Joni Mitchell as her, I guess, Joni maybe had an in-home in studio or something. So some, so Joni called a few times. She sent a, a beret to me that, that said the War of the Berets, peace at last. <laughs> it was like very classy move. And it's a, you know, the second was a female and the engineer was a female and you know, I'm I'm gonna give them as a hard time as anybody. Going well, you're one female in in a hundred. So are you as good? Totally, easily as good, and so gentle. And we have to just try to open the door a little bit and get them in. They'll do a great job. They do just. They're not physically incapable because they have boobs of uh, learning how to do technical things. Right? Yeah, yeah. So you know, I didn't really ask a question, which was, is that a word world that you would like to see more women behind the scenes stuff too and more women as session players and do you feel like that's something that would make a difference to you to me no mm -hmm. i'm totally in the imaginary world of the sound of what you play right. i have to contend with the personality or sex when i'm on the road but i live in this other world where you know i hardly even see the person who's playing i just feel their music coming out of them. So mm -hmm. I think there are a number of fine, well, I hear of them anyway, fine women bass players, upright bass players, and they're out there. How is it that they don't come before me? Because there are a lot more men. So, you know, if you're asking me, I haven't thought about it, but it would be wonderful for me. I, I'm sure I have prejudice as well because I don't have experience. And the only way you get over prejudice of any kind is experience. Once I experience a female band that feeds me sensually and takes me where I want to go that I don't put up boundaries with. So I have to experience it. I can answer academically and say, of course, but that's the truth about not having the experience of people is you do develop little, uh, do I want a female doctor? I don't know. It's my doctor, my dentist, everybody's a woman. But I know that there was a time when I was, ah, are they going to be, are they going to be as good? So you have to take a step out in that direction. 
We have that yeah. internalized, you know, that we internalized do. misogyny, Even internalized yeah. sexism. And, yeah. and it's the default. It's just the default, you yeah. know. Doing press over the years, uh, kind of on the same tip, have you ever noticed a difference when you sit ah. down to have an interview with somebody who is a man versus a woman? Well, there's a, woman? a difference for mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. I don't know if one is better, but they're sure. different. What is that difference for you? I think I laugh a lot with women. I think, you know, there are guards we can take down with one another that we must keep up when we're talking to the other sex at all times. We can't have them (laughs) mistaking anything. So I never thought of it. But if I drew a picture of me talking to a man, I think I'd be more pointed. And talking to a woman, I'd have things extending outward this way. And I I like both of them very much, but I am protected at all times with guys. (laughs) Ricky Lee Jones, it's been amazing to spend this time with you. I literally could talk to you all day. Before we go, why don't you choose another song off of the album? Whatever speaks to you, if there's anything that even pops into your head that's connected to our conversation. I'd like to suggest September's song. We were talking about Kurt Vile and the oddness of the lyric. And I turned uh, the verses around. So I actually begin with the second verse and, and then the first. And I think that would be appropriate for my dad to play my rendition of September song. Oh, it's a long, long while from May to December. Thank you so much for being with us on Shiro's. What an honor. Thank you. Sets the leaves to flame. Then you haven't got time 
Massive thanks once again to Ricky Lee Jones for joining us this week. Her new album, Pieces of Treasure, is available now on BMG. She Rose is produced by me, is mixed and mastered by Kelly Drake. Our original theme music is by Lucius. She Rose is also a nationally syndicated radio show. You can visit SheRoseRadio.com to find out more and support our work with Patreon or merch from the She Rose shop. Keep in touch on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at Carmel Holt or find us at She Rose Radio. And please consider leaving us a rating and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. That helps us grow and bring you more Shiro's. Until next time, remember, music is our superpower. I'm Carmel Holt. Thanks for listening.